Hola. So, I've made many references, of course, to Dujum Lingba for this retreat, even though we're not really focusing on his, his uh, teachings, his re- revealed teachings on Dzogchen. But he's really a wonderfully classic instance of what's called in Tibetan Rangjung, Rangjung Nanjoba, Rangjung Nanjoba, a self-emergent yogin. That he was just there from childhood, you know, from early childhood, having visions of Padmasambhava, Yeshe Tsogyal, and so forth, as you well know. So these people are manifesting or embodying such profound realization, not in this lifetime, that in that particular lifetime, due to teachers and being in retreat and a lot of causes and conditions coming together to germinate their Buddha nature and make it manifest. They just they just came in. They came just came in, uh, and in his case, as you know, didn't ever actually have a human a human lama in that lifetime. It's unusual, but it's not unique. This is a soundtrack I wasn't aware of. <laughs> Sounds like, um, let's see, Lone Ranger? Okay. Or Mozart, whichever. <laughs> so, back to serious stuff. So, but within this lineage here for the um, Spacious Path of Freedom, of course, the author, Kamachameram, which is an incredible scholar, I'm sure had many, many teachers. But interestingly in his life, uh, he became the guru of a... We'll we'll pause, see what we can do about that. Do you know what's causing it? Not not really. Well, as long as it's off, I'll talk. Uh, But there was this young young Tibetan boy, Mingyu Dorje, and he was just like that. He was one of these self-origined, just spontaneous, enlightened individuals. And he just came in, just loaded. I mean, a profound realization, very possibly a Buddha himself. Nevertheless, in this particular case with Mingyurache, then he sought out Mingyuramuche to to enter into the current, the lineage, you know, going back to the earlier Kamapas and so forth. And so then it was one of those wonderfully anomalous situations where Kamachameramuche recognized that this was just an inconceivable prodigy of Mingyurache. So he asked the boy to be his guru realizing that his age really was irrelevant. He had an incredibly profound realization. But the boy, wanting to enter into the flow with oral transmissions, the empowerments and so forth, then he went to this extraordinarily accomplished scholar, uh, siddha, you know, everything, teacher, Kamachabhanamachi. Uh, so they were mutually guru-disciple, guru-disciple. Mm-hmm. So this is not terribly uncommon in, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But then we can imagine if these are vidyadharas who are manifesting, just man- and coming in, just manifesting from basically from birth, early childhood on, we can imagine this happens not only in the Kagyu tradition, or not in Nyingma, which would be silly to think only there. It would be equally silly to think that the vidyadharas would say, well, I'm not going to go unless they're Buddhist. You know, that he would be, he or she, I mean, you know, whatever gender, uh, would be I, I confining their enlightened activities only in Tibetan Buddhism. It'd be, be a very, very rich area to manifest because they'll be so welcomed. You know, they won't be burnt. That's nice. You know, it's always nice not to be burnt at the stake. Um, they won't be ignored. They won't just be put to work and so forth and so on. Um, and then we can wonder well, have there ever been any self emergent yogins, let's say, in the modern world? and outside of Tibet, or outside of the Tibetan region. 
And my answer is, how would I know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but I do know of one person that if there were a candidate, I think I'd probably say, well, you might check him out. Not that I know, I really don't. Uh, but he was truly a remarkable man. I'd like to just make a few comments about him because it pertains directly to great equanimity, which is our topic for this morning's meditation. Great equ equanimity. And again, I'll just give you the line, the transmission again from the Tibetan, the first line. And then it goes on. Why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment to that which is close and aversion to that which is far? Or those who are close, those who are far. Why couldn't? And then you know how it goes from there. This great equanimity. Again, there's no question that can be interpreted in, in multiple ways. But since we're right now in the midst of a Mahamudra retreat, not just Shamato or simply Vipassana, uh, then now would be clearly a time to really be thinking about Taknyam, pure equality, the great, the great equality of samsara and nirvana, which you know is classic. In in the Mahamudra traditions, often to refer to as rochik, one taste, that one taste, same term as used in Dzogchen, the one taste of samsara and nirvana, where there's not even any preference for nirvana over samsara, which is frankly inconceivable. I think it truly is inconceivable. And any day of the year, in any galaxy, I would always choose nirvana myself. Hell nirvana. I think I'll go nirvana, you know? <laughs> Hell pure land. Pure land! You know, it just doesn't take me much time to think of it, but that just shows that I'm not, you know, dwelling in the one taste. I, I thought I could fool you. I guess I guess now I've taken off all my clothes. Uh, okay. But has it happened? The answer is I don't know. But there was one individual that really has, I really found great admiration, great, great admiration arising for. And um, it's almost, it's come off ridiculous to believe, okay. Um, you know, he was born in Pasadena. I was born in Pasadena. Okay. Born in Pasadena. Um, his father was a Protestant pastor. <laughs> he was with Methodist. Mine was Baptist. No, it's not. This is not me. Um, his parents were citrus ranchers. They raised orange trees. My grandparents were in the same area. Uh, he studied at Stanford and studied psychology, mathematics, and philosophy. I did too at Amherst and then at Stanford. So it really kind of a resonance. No, nothing mystical here. It's just kind of like an interesting resonance. And then, as a son of a clergyman, when he was in his teens, he kept on, he just, just didn't find that this Methodist version of Christianity was making any sense to him. And so he asked, his father couldn't give him any answers he was satisfied with. So he spoke with another clergyman, and the clergyman said, you just have to leave this with God. And that's when he stopped asking questions. He said, this doesn't make any sense to me. I, I can't just have blind faith. And that's exactly what happened to me. I, I mean, exactly, when I was 16. Uh, I just asked questions, and he says, well, you just have to trust. And I said, well, I can't. I can't just trust. I mean, there's all kinds of rubbish that I can't trust. And I, I'm not calling this rubbish, I just can't believe it. And so then he went off to Stanford. He had a year at Harvard. I uh, had actually invited back to Stanford to teach, but then after a year in academia teaching, then he bailed out, uh, out of academia, because he just didn't feel that was a real path, because he wanted to experience higher states of consciousness himself.
So he studied various things. He studied yoga. He looked a bit into theosophy. This he was born in 1870, 77, I think, 77, 79, long time, 1879, something like that. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot to deal with in terms of the, of Eastern thought. But as he, after he bailed out of um, academia, then he did come across the teachings of Advaita Vedanta, and specifically the writings of Shankara. And he said, now that makes sense. And I think he had very little, way in the, in, very little in the way of instruction. Uh, he met a Rab- Rabindranath, Rabindranath Tagore, was very impressed by him. Um, but it doesn't seem that he had much instruction from any you know, accomplished yogi or swami or anything like that. He read books and he raised oranges. And eventually when they hit the, when they hit the depression, he went off and did gold mining a little bit just to try to get, try to get some extra income for his family. And he did. Didn't spend years in retreat, but while he was gold mining, uh, he had a lot of time in his hands, and he was reflecting and reflecting and reflecting. And when he was 49 years old, kind of out of the blue, uh, then he had some experiences. So I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to. I am. I am a scholar, a PhD in comparative contemplative studies, but that doesn't really give me any authority. That just shows I've had had an interest. So I'm not going to interpret anything. I'm just going to tell you how he described his experience, and. Uh, Maybe it's inspiring. I find it inspiring. So here he had he had a hundred days of unfolding. Here's a short here's a short summary. So he entered into one, eight forty nine, out of the blue. In the transcendent state the dualism between subject and object disappears. So that one experiences a sense of unity with whatever is experienced in that state. One's own sense of personal identity identity dissolves into a sense of space without the presence of any subject-object distinctions. He experiences a sense of depth, abstraction, and great universality in the thoughts that arose while in that state. So it wasn't simply non-conceptual, at least concepts were arising within that space. Hmm. He experiences a sense of depth, abstraction, and great universality in the thoughts that arose while in that state, beyond which there was an, he called, impenetrable darkness, which he knew to be the essence of light. The lingering effects of this realization were a profound sense of contentment and serenity in the face of adversity, joy, and benevolence. So benevolence kind of really just flowed out of that experience. And this carried over. This is, this, it just kept on flowing outward and outward. And it led, and so he felt that was it. He had, that, it, that was his first realization. And he thought, that's what I was, was always looking for. And then to his utter astonishment, there was a breaking through that, a cutting through that that occurred spontaneously. And here's how he described it. It was called his second realization. His compassionate motivation led him to an unexpected second realization that resolved the tension between non-dual consciousness and the, and the phenomenal world. This realization resulted in a sense of perfect equilibrium between relative and ultimate levels of consciousness without his being attached to either one. In this state of pristine awareness, he no longer valued transcendent non-dual awareness over the experience of the phenomenal world, for he recognized that ultimately there was no difference between the two. Wolf called this realization high 
indifference. It doesn't sound terribly different from great equanimity to me, but maybe that's just me. He called it high indifference in which he experienced a complete resolution of tension between all opposites. This entailed the complete transcendence of all distinctions, including the distinction between the transcendent and the relative. At this point, he had relinquished all sense of personal identity in terms of a lower sense of an ego, as well as the highest sense of a transcendent self. And finally, during this awakening, which lasted several hours, Wolf felt a sense of identity with both a primordial, unlimited, and abstract space, those are his words, as well as, again, quote, subject, object, and self-analyzing consciousness that had a sort of point presence within that space. This entailed a shift of consciousness away from individual identity toward a ground of consciousness that gives rise to the manifest world. Here, a, here he identified with a universal substrate in which he felt he knew the objects of the world through having become one with them, and this brought with it an extraordinary state of bliss. So, I find some resonance there, but that's for everybody to decide on your own. I give you the source. Um, so I didn't know anything about him until I was, so that was at the age of 49. That was in 1936. And so in, in 1986, uh, that's when I went across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast on my motorcycle. And I was going up through my favorite backpacking area in all of anywhere, the Eastern Sierra, Eastern Sierra Mountains in California. They're utterly grand. And so I'd been backpacked up there many, many times. And I was driving up this long north-south road, Highway 395, on my motorcycle with my tent, my sleeping bags, my robes, uh, <laughs> everything. And it was Memorial Day weekend, May 1985, 1986, 1986. And I up, drove up this familiar road where we'd gone off backpacking so many times. And uh, the sun was going down, and, and, I had, and, so I, and all the campgrounds were full. And so I just, I just drove up some road going up to the mountains and then kind of hid my bike and went down and um, laid out my tent and quietly, you know. And so I was inside my tent, just kind of bedded down, late, late you know, ev kind of evening. And then I heard crunch, crunch, crunch outside. And it was a, um, a forest ranger came. And, he's, and, he's, and uh, he said, you know, you're not allowed to, to camp here. You're supposed to camp in designated areas. And I, sa and I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, the campgrounds are all full. But um, I, won't leave a, you, I won't leave a mark. You won't know I've been here. I, I won't do anything. I'm just sleeping here. I'll be on. Um, and he said, it's a nice bike. <laughs> 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 bike as in motorcycle. I had a BMW 650. It's a sweet one. And I said, would you like to ride it? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> so he, he zipped up. That was my little bribe. Who, me? <laughs> How dare you? I was a Buddhist monk. So he came back. He came back from his little jaunt. And as they say of happy motorcyclists, his, bug, his teeth were full of bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. 
So then we just had a really pleasant chat. And he said, you know, you can go ahead and stay, no big deal. And, he's, and, but, and then he learned, he learned a little about me, a Buddhist monk, not so <laughs> on a motorcycle. And uh, he said, you know, there's a guy just down south from here. I think you'd really like to meet him, and he'd really like to meet you. Um, and uh, his name is Franklin Merrill Wolf. And you might want to check him out. And it was a Memorial Day weekend, a lot of traffic, and I just didn't want to, I just kind of wanted to lay low until that, you know, big vacation was over. So I drove back down, and I broke, head, head back down south to the town of Independence. <laughs> and, then, and then was basically asking, because he just lived up in the, up, out in the wilderness, and I took the wrong turn, right, right, wrong turn, and then finally found the right place and uh, pulled up to a house, and I said, is this where Franklin Merrill Wolf lives? And she says, well, you, you missed him by about eight months. He died last year. This was May 1986. He died in October 1985. But she told me a little about him, that he was born in Pasadena, and his father was a clergyman, and he studied at Stanford, and I hadn't gone to Stanford yet. In fact, one reason for going, from going to Stanford was he'd been there. Um, but then it turned out that that, um, that, that weekend, was a time now only eight minutes after his death that his step-granddaughter and her husband, who became kind of the world expert on Franklin Merrill writings, and the, the woman, the nurse who took care of him during the latter years of his life, because he did die at the age of 98, they had all convened to, to, to parley among themselves, what should we do th with this 400 acres of his property that he created, that he purchased, as to be a retreat center, a, a, space for a space for spiritual awakening. They called it the Great Space Center. And so I'm by nature actually very shy, very introverted, but I just kind of, so they pointed, this woman down in a house below, she said, they're up there, I think you can probably bump into them. You won't be able to see him, but you know, everybody close related to him, they're up there now. So I just jaunted it and say, hi, my name's Alan Wallace. And they invited me in, right, just like family, incredibly friendly. And they told, took me up to an ashrama that he built way up in the mountains in, in, the, in the form of a balanced Greece, Greek cross, all made out of stone. It took him 20 years to build. And uh, so we've been friends ever since. And I've, I've spent more than a year in retreat at his home, led many short retreats on the property. It's very austere. It's like central Tibet, really like central Tibet. Very austere, very powerful, very dry. Um, and so, strong connection there. So, Franklin Merrill Wolf, age halfway, exactly halfway, 49 years through his life, he had this great awakening. It lingered with him, even though that the epiphany was only a matter of hours. It radically changed his body, so he had a kind of an energy that just, it was an energy, that, a stream of energy that flowed for the rest of his life. And um, so, he lived there. He lived for some time in Santa Barbara also. But he spent his final couple of 20, 30 years there in Lone Pine, just outside of Lone Pine, and had just a small group of disciples and lived there very quietly. But he sounded, but I've had many, many conversations with his step-granddaughter and, and her husband, who became his kind of his disciple and kind of primary, you know, real scholar of his work. And it really struck me, oh, here's a man who had really no guru, Nothing really to speak of. His formal training was primarily in mathematics and philosophy. And then he said that. And, and it wasn't that he said it, because anybody can say that. But he was simply describing experience. And so I found that very inspiring. And I thought I would just share that with you.
So I've just been fortunate enough, come, fortunate enough to come in, into his mandala a little bit, even though I missed him, per, missed him in person. Uh, on I don't know, maybe I've led 15, 20 retreats there on his land, and, and I sat in his chair, the, the chair that he always taught from, and it was empty. So they let me sit in his chair, and we just had some, oh, retreats for small, small number of people, 20, 25 people at most, because it's just a ranch house. It's not a retreat center, really. Uh, but it brings back very sweet memories and a really awesome, awesome countryside that is mountains and the sky and the, the high desert. So that's a little prelude, more like, kind of like chit-chat. But it does kind of make the mind a bit more spacious, I think, to show that there are, you know, that such spontaneous realization, whether it's the same as Dzogchen, oh, one point later, and that is years later, 1970s, 1970s when, or late 60s, 70s, when the Tibetan Buddhism was start first starting to finally come to the West. One of the prominent lamas, as many of you know, was Tatanchuku, and he settled in California. And Franklin Merrill Wolf learned about him. He read about him. He met him. And he said, that's it. What you're teaching, that, that's it. That's it. He never knew of it. There was almost nothing there, you know. But that's, that's, that's it. That's it. And he wanted to offer at least at least some portion of, of his property to Tatantuku. Just offer it to him to make his Dzogchen center out of it. Uh, and for whatever reason, Tatantuku decided not. He did not accept. So he has a, quite an extraordinary center on the other side of the mountains in California. But he clearly, Franklin Merrill had a very strong resonance. When he learned about Dzogchen, he said, that's it. And, he, and before he learned about that, he learned about the Bodhisattva ideal. He said, that's it. That's it. Not one's own liberation. That's it. And he didn't find that in Shankara. There's no bodhicitta in Shankara. And so he really, when he learned about Mayan, he gravitated to that. And when he learned about Dzogchen, then he said, that's it. That's it. So all spontaneous. So, and he was a Westerner born in Pasadena, <laughs> who went to Stanford. So that kind of inspires me, like, okay, he can do it. I'm not spontaneous. I'm not like that but maybe, you know, with a lot of help from my friends. Uh. <laughs> Sooner or later, this lifetime, future lifetime, someday. So, shall we practice? Namo, in the Lama who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the Three Jewels, I, together with the beings of the Six Realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semkin doa kundun doa lama sangye dupne ni Kangla kandu tinle ki doa damcha For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. 
By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Hum In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pemasiti Hum. If you'd like to switch positions, please do so now. With our practice imbued with the sense of taking refuge, ultimately in our own pristine awareness, imbued with bodhicitta, imbued with whatever understanding of emptiness we have. And imbued with at least the imagined sense of identity, of unity, with our own pristine awareness, non-dual from the mind of Padmasambhava and the Buddhas of the three times. Rest for a little while, in awareness of awareness, in its utter simplicity.
when we simply rest in awareness without attending to appearances. Poetically speaking, we're resting in the inner glow of awareness within its own vase. But now let this light of your awareness, this clear light of your awareness flow outwards in its creative expressions, the radiance of awareness itself manifesting, manifesting its creative potential. And let's move into the cultivation or the unveiling of great equanimity. As we let the light of our own awareness illuminate our own form, in your appearance, but again one that is empty, translucent, insubstantial, really holographic, just pure light. illuminated by the light within. And from this perspective, let's engage in this classic sequential meditation, beginning with the question, why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment to that which is close, and aversion to that which is far? Why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in the great equal purity of samsara and nirvana? Since this is, after all, not only our potential, but our actual nature here and now. the aspiration, may we dwell, may we all dwell in such great equanimity. and arouse the powerful resolve, if you will. I shall make it so. I shall bring all sentient beings to such a dwelling in great equanimity.
And finally, may the Guru and the Deity grant me the blessings to enable me to do so. And then with each in-breath, imagine all the Buddhas of the three times, all the awakened ones, showering you with blessings from all sides, above and below, the light of blessings converging in upon your body, of all the five colors of the rainbow, feeling saturating your body, empowering your body, speech and mind, And with every out-breath, breathe out. Breathe out this light. And imagine all sentient beings, those near and those far, realizing such equanimity. Imagine bringing them along the path, each one according to their own needs, their own background, their own predilections, each one unique and every ray of light from your heart, meeting exactly the needs from moment to moment, day to day, of every sentient being, to lead them to their own fulfillment, to lead them to great, great equanimity.
and release all appearances, all objects and aspirations, and rest effortlessly in the present moment. So I have a very brief announcement for people listening by way of podcasts, as well as those many, many uh, here who are here. Um, this morning I was able to finish the translation of the long sadhana, not very long, but nicely long, sadhana of the Lake Vajra, again with the wonderful help of uh, Lama Chanchubla, for which I'm so deeply in- indebted and grateful. Uh, so that's finished. I think it's pretty good. I think it's okay. Uh, so there's the long one, there's the short one, um, but it is helpful to have a bit of guidance in that. It's not entirely self-explanatory. And so so for anyone listening by podcast who attended, participated in that empowerment, then please contact Sangye Wamo or simply write to the Santa Barbara Institute. I'll let them know because it's what I'd like to do, this little offering on Sunday, which is then not part of this retreat, Right, Sunday is our day off, but it's on Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. Then I'll come here, and I will practice the long sadhana, go through it, and be explaining it to myself, and you can listen in. <laughs> so we'll do that. And you understand the long one, then you easily understand the short one. That, that goes without saying; it's easy. Uh, so we'll do that at four o'clock. Um, and then again, anyone who's listening to my podcast, this will not be for general distribution. There's really no point. If one's not had the empowerment, you shouldn't be doing the practice. Um, and so please do write to Sangye, because they will, we will record this, we'll make it available, but I think there must be some way to make it available only for people who sign in. There's no charge, there's no strings attached, nothing. It's free like everything else we're offering by way of podcast. Uh, but you do, do need to sign in, and we'll simply assume that if you write to Sangye and you say you'd like to participate, that you do take the impor- empowerment. There'll be no point in doing it if you haven't. So that's one point. That's one brief announcement. Um, and then the second one is, there are a number of you still here now after seven weeks that I really don't know. And I will not have an opportunity to know you well, but I don't want to go away not knowing you at all. And those are the ones who've had the good fortune to have your interviews with Glenn again, for whom I'm very, very grateful. I know he's done a wonderful job. You keep on flocking around him like bees coming to honey. So it has to be for a reason, right? 
And so uh, I'm very glad you've had his wise counsel. I have no doubt he's given you very, very good counsel. And I look forward to working with him again next year when we have our eight-week retreat in Tuscany. Glenn has kindly offered to help out in the same capacity, for which, again, I'm very, very glad. Um, but at the same time, I don't want there to be any strangers in the room by the time we part. So any of you who would like to, I'm not going to twist your arm and drag you in, but uh, on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, uh, I would like to keep this place just for, uh, for people to meditate as usual. Yeah? But any, uh, any of you who have had your interviews with Glenn, if you'd like to meet with me collectively, uh, then we can gather, I think, uh, Rhonda, we, we can gather down there, yeah? In that place where the Malaysians had their, their meals and so forth. So we'll gather there at 10 o'clock and just chat. I have no agenda, but at least I'd like to get to know you a little bit. Okay? So obviously it's not obligatory, but any, anybody who'd like to join me. The other ones have had your interviews? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> not for you. <laughs> Enjoy your day in great equanimity. See you later on. <laughs>